Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The Pope and Young Club wants to welcome you as we rally together to ensure our bow hunting opportunities for today and tomorrow. You've come to the podcast that believes in preserving, protecting, and promoting the passion for bow hunting. Join us as we strive to be the voice of today's bow hunter. This is the Pope and Young Podcast. Welcome to the Pope and Young Podcast. This is Jason Roundsville. I'm joined today by my co-host Dylan Ray, and we have special guest from the National Deer Association. We have Nick Pinizzato. Nick, welcome to the show. Hey, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, super excited to hear. I know there's been a bunch going on in your world with some changes over there. And uh, we're just going to jump right in and and ask about us. Tell us about the formation of the new NDA and, and how that all came about and, uh, and, and where you guys were and where you're looking to go in the future. Well, I could use up the entire podcast, I think, just telling that story, but uh, I'll try to give you the boiled down version. So yeah, the, the National Deer Association was formerly two organizations, the National Deer Alliance, where I was the, the president and CEO and the Quality Deer Management Association. And so the quality, very different organizations in a sense that the Quality Deer Management Association had been around for over 30 years, whereas the National Deer Alliance had been around for just five years. And so uh, one of the first things I want to address out of the gate, because I get the question a lot, is did you do this because of COVID? <laughs> and so yeah. um, we've done a lot of things or not done a lot of things, depending on how you want to look at it, because of COVID. Um, but as far as these organizations coming together, it's funny, the conversation started uh, before any shutdown started to happen with the COVID situation. And so the the discussions were, how can we just do more for deer in general? And does it really make sense to have these two separate organizations where the National Deer Association, uh, what we focused on 100, 100% was just policy, any policy that impacted deer across the country, all deer species. And whereas the Quality Deer Management Association certainly did some policy work. They also, uh, their mission extended to on the ground uh, work, helping people improve habitat, um, improving age classes of deer, uh, educating people about deer science and research. Uh, and they also, uh, a big difference was have a, have a paid membership and uh, doing the the local banquets and conservation fundraisers and so on, whereas the National Deer Alliance uh, didn't have any of that. 
we we had members, but they were it was a free membership. And so really the conversation was, listen, uh, let's let's start having a conversation about what it might look like for these two organizations just to be one. And it just so happened at the time that the, the Quality Deer Management Association was just about to start a search for a new CEO. And it just seemed to be the perfect time. And so as we started into that conversation, uh, COVID hit. <laughs> and so uh, it sort of, um, I don't want to say accelerated the conversation, but it certainly um, intensified things, meaning we started looking very big picture then and say, looking across the conservation landscape and just saying, man, resources might be hard to come by here. Uh, what we're talking about doing makes a lot of sense anyway. And so quickly, board members from both sides got on board. We started having uh, the staffs. I was meeting, me and the one staff person with the Deer Alliance were having meetings already with the staff of the Quality Deer Management Association. And then those evolved into meetings with board members from each side. And we started uh, what we called a joint venture at that point. And that's when it really got serious. And we started uh, having the discussion about number one, can we pull this off and does it make sense? And then by the middle of the year, uh, around July, uh, sometime in July, I, sh I should have the date etched in my brain, but I don't. Uh, we made the announcement that we were gonna merge. We didn't have a name yet. Uh, but we we let people know that this was happening and uh, really kind of uh, uh, shook the ground a little bit in terms of uh, deer and, and deer conservation and uh, conservation in general by, by making that announcement. Yeah, it was a good, I mean, it was a big splash and, and it definitely got people talking about things. And it seemed like to me, being from the outside, it seemed like a really good fit because a lot of the a lot of the things that NDA was doing were complementary to what QDMA had going on, but they didn't, there wasn't a huge overlap, at least looking from the outside. And so it seemed like a very good complement to one another. Yeah, we didn't have the huge overlap, but there were some things that we both did. And, but the, the, to, to strengthen the policy part of it on the QDMA side and then bring the whole grassroots membership aspect, field to fork program is something I hadn't even mentioned yet. And to marry those two just made us a very strong organization. And so uh, in July, we started rearranging the structure of our organization. We made some kind of bold moves uh, that were uh, eyebrow raising, I think for some of our peers. So for example, we had always required each of our branches to hold a fundraising banquet, and we eliminated that requirement. Uh, obviously, you weren't going to hold a lot of banquets during uh, during the pandemic, and we quickly figured out that that is a tough way to live your life, relying on those banquets to raise funds. And frankly, you don't make that much money if you're not doing them well. You don't make that much money, or you even lose money uh, if you're if you're doing that system. So we just said, you know what, we're going to make money just by not doing it. And we got more innovative, we got more streamlined, even to the point of we're selling our national headquarters uh, building in Bogart, Georgia. That transaction will complete at the end of this month, end of January, and we're going 100% remote. And people say, well, that's crazy. How can you do that? Say, so, well, when you look at the cost of having that building and then you ask yourself, what does it actually do for our mission? How does having that building help us achieve our mission? Uh, what is it doing to put more conservation on the ground or engaging more people? And it, when you start thinking about it, you realize, well, 
really doesn't do anything. It just costs us a lot of money and a lot of overhead. So it was another uh, way to save dollars. And instead of putting them into a building, we're putting them into the resource. That's, yeah, that's something that we, um, we have, have dealt with and struggled with as well, because we have the museum there and, and or our, our building houses our museum in Chatfield. But it's a very, you know, it's an expensive proposition and you're tying up a lot of resources. And, you know, unfortunately for us, we're not on a main travel corridor. So if, if you're not, you're not going to just stumble through Chatfield. You have to be, you know, going to Chatfield to get there. So we've stumbled or we've, uh, we've looked into some of that as well. So. Well, I've, I've been at the museum in Chatfield and you're right. <laughs> yeah. You, you have to be looking for it. And it, it's such a wonderful resource uh, that when I first went there, I thought to myself, it's a shame it's here. Nothing against Chatfield, but just in terms of the number of people that can see uh, the, the wonderful place that it is. And I thought, man, it'd be better if this was in front of people uh, where, where, the, where people could see it by the, the thousands and tens of thousands each year, as opposed to just the few people that made it through. Uh, but no, you're right. I mean, getting just, just talking about bold moves like that, um, I made it very clear coming in that that's what I wanted to do. And that if we were going to do this, if it was going to work for me personally and work for the organizations, uh, we had to uh, quickly pivot, become more modern, become more streamlined. Uh, cut expenses and make sure that we're using the funds that we do have more efficiently toward our mission and credit to both boards of directors. They were hundred percent on board with that. And here we are. Gotcha. Now, were you able to, did you combine both boards and keep them or did you uh, combine and, and reduce the total number? Or how, how many do you have on your current board? So we have 14 right now. We want to have uh, 16. We have two open spots. Uh, that we purposely left open. And what we did was we brought over seven board members from each side. Okay. So yeah, it was a combined board. Now, some folks uh, didn't come over and remain board members. So what we did, we also created advisory committees. And so almost without exception, if you were a board member of either the National Deer Alliance or the Quality Deer Management Association, you still had some meaningful role as part of um, as part of the merger. So yeah, just about everybody is still involved in some capacity. Excellent. And so if you had to say right now, your top three, the top three things that, that you're doing right now, or the NDA is doing, what would those top three be, Nick? That's a great question. You know, I, we just, we just did just wrapped up and got approved in December, our strategic plan. And one of that's one of the first things we did when we announced the merger was started working on the plan because uh, we needed we needed to have our sights on something instead of just generally saying, well, we want to do more for deer. And so out of that, we created a plan that had several priorities, some internal uh, and some external. Uh, the internal, I think I've kind of touched on already, and that was just getting our business better, some business 101 stuff. Right. Uh, that just frankly needed to be better. So that was that was a big part of it. But outside external in terms of the resource, um, a, a really strong commitment to our field to fork program is one of them. Uh, that's our hunter recruitment program. Uh, we learned uh, through that program uh, that a really great way to recruit new people inter that are interested in hunting is through food. 
And we also learned that uh, a lot of those people, it's, it's not going out and doing youth days, you know, where the, where the bulk of the people that show up are kids that already come from outdoors families. Uh, it's going to the people who have income and the whereabouts to get out and go hunting. Uh, so you're talking, uh, you know, people, you know, probably starting in their early twenties and beyond and just giving them the opportunity. That program has really taken off. We've got some exciting things going on with that. Uh, so that's one of our priority areas for sure. Uh, we're going to continue to be uh, a great resource on the science, uh, the conservation science. We're going to continue to play a prominent role in chronic wasting disease, for example. Uh, also, just general education, uh, deer research. We have always, through, through the QDMA side, always been a leader in that regard. Uh, a, looked up, a looked upon authority for that type of information. We're certainly going to continue that while also continuing to be boots on the ground uh, for people who want to do management on their own properties. So that's not going to change. And then policy is, I would say, uh, if I had to say the three top, I'd throw policy in there because uh, you know this as, as well as anybody. There are probably at any one time, a hundred different bills across the country that impact deer or hunting or conservation in some way. And so a lot of, a lot of times now, our, our, uh, I hate to call them battles, but our, our important conversations are being held in state legislatures or the federal government on Capitol Hill, uh, or, or even locally at times at the municipal level. And so Deer need a national leader in that regard. And so we have a, a whole division of our organization that just works on policy, gets it out in front of people, gets it out in front of deer hunters uh, so that they can very easily act upon it, be aware, and also you know, take action when we need them to. So um, you know, there's a lot in between there, but I would say those are those are really the three things that would stand out. Gotcha. Yeah, it's amazing when you start looking at, at public policy work. You know, you appreciate it and you almost hate at the same time how much power, you know, a signature on the bottom of one of those pages can have for, you know, some of the things that we love so much. You can have, you can have big impacts with, with just one bill going through, you know, the right way or the wrong way. Yeah. And it's something that most people don't really care to engage with. If you're a deer hunter and, uh, you know, the middle of Wisconsin and you're only, you're just, you're focused on, man, can I get out a few times this bow season, for example? Yeah. And and when I get out, can I, can I get close to this deer I want to shoot? And you're not focused on, you know, what's going on on Capitol Hill on a big conservation program that impacts the farm bill, for example, that directly impacts your deer hunting. You're not focused on that. So our job is to put that stuff in front of, in front of that hunter and say, Hey, this is important take five minutes and get this letter sent off through our system. So that's, that's really what we try to do. Excellent. And now how many, uh, how many States are you guys in or, or represented with right now, Nick? Well, we represent, uh, we, we will do policy work on behalf of all deer species. Excellent. So, yeah, so that's in that way, um, you know, we, we have members in all 50 States. So that's, I would, I would just say that we have, a national focus, although we also work very closely with our friends north of the border as well. Uh, so largely the United States, but we've got members in Canada. And so I would say we're, we're really a North American based organization. Excellent. Okay. Well, that's good because we need somebody out there working on, on behalf of, of our deer populations. And, and it's, 
while you can have an impact to the state or a regional level, I think it's important to have a voice in both. Yeah. So now yeah. talk, talking about, uh, about hunting and about the guy up in the tree in Wisconsin, how, did you make it out this fall? I did. And as a matter of fact, I'm, when we get off of this call, I'm hoping to get out yet this afternoon. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm a definitely uh, a big time bow hunter. I always have been um, ever since I picked it up when I was 15 years old. And I would have started sooner if my dad would have let me. Um, actually, uh, I, I really wasn't supposed to start until I was 16 years old, but I was able to at least shave a year off of that. Uh, I guess with good behavior or whatnot, but um, at any rate, yeah, I'm a, I'm a definitely a very passionate bow hunter. Um, it's it's my by far preferred method of hunting. I love it. Um, had a good season this particular year. Um, shot a, a really nice uh, uh, eleven pointer in Delaware, which uh, easily would easily make your books. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that was that was uh, that was good. Uh, shots. I, I like to shoot a lot of does, uh, which is something that is an organization we've been trying to stress because we, we just actually were going over our deer report uh, last evening. Uh, we, we were doing our beer and deer webinar. And uh, as we reviewed that, one of the things that stand out is how few does people are shooting. And so I like to shoot does. That's what I'm after this evening. And I'm going to go back to Delaware. My home state's Pennsylvania. That's where I'll be hunting this evening. But I'm going to go back uh, to Delaware next week and try to shoot more does. I've shot two so far. Um, but, you know, just getting out there, uh, getting the fresh air. I just, I love carrying that bow. I mean, I went out gun season a couple times and it's just not the same for me, which is something I'm sure this audience will appreciate. I'm sure you have listeners that are, they'll, they'll hunt with a gun, but it's not the preferred way. And so if I'm out there climbing a tree with the, with my bow in hand, I'm, I'm usually a pretty happy guy. Yeah. It's, you know, we run the gamut. We have, you know, we have some members that they will hunt with any legal means available to them. I had one, one member tell me, he says, you know, if there was a spear season, I'd do that too. And uh, then we have other members that they are, it's, it's a bow or nothing. Uh, in fact, one of our board members won a bighorn hunt last year, last March, actually. And uh, so this is a real high-end trip. It was, you know, the big trip of this whole event. And he goes up and he talks to the outfitter and he was so excited. And he says, oh, man, I, this is the one I need to complete my slam. And the guy said, oh, that's great. Well, you know, we're we're 100% on our sheep. And and they started talking. He says, oh, man, this is great. I just, I'm on the Pope and Young board. And, uh, you know, I got this new bow. And they started talking. The guy's like, well, we don't take bow hunters. And this guy literally handed a, you know, $50,000, $60,000 hunt back to the outfitter and said, oh, well, if I can't shoot with my bow, I, I don't really need it. And the guy just looked at him dumbfounded. And I, I was in the same boat because, if you know, as the executive director, if he had told me that, I said, that's OK. I've got a rifle. But uh, this guy is one of our board members, and he literally wasn't going to to accept the hunt. He says, well, you can auction it off, make some money. It, that is the the measure of resolve of, of some of our members. It, it, that was an impressive thing to, to watch and, and be a spectator on, I can assure you. Well, I have to say that I, I would have um, found it within myself to carry my rifle <laughs> on that, on that particular yeah. hunt if I needed to, but, uh, but I understand that passion. I totally get it. 
Absolutely. I, I, you have to respect that. But if he just, if he had told me that I said, okay, no problem. Pick a caliber. I'll bring it. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, uh, so what, when, when you're out hunting, is it mostly whitetails? Do you get out to the West for some, some mule deer? Yeah. So I mean, it's primarily whitetail, but uh, I lived in North Dakota for a time and really, uh, I, I do enjoy chasing a spot and stock mule deer hunting when I get a chance. And I, you know, I don't, um, I'm a public lands DIY person in that regard. So I'm not, uh, you know, one to go get it outfitted or anything like that. And so, uh, I just love chasing them, you know, just, just focusing on mule deer for a second. I mean, they're just such cool animals and it's a different, uh, it's a completely different game. Uh, as a guy that grew up with 90% of my bow hunting, my feet are off the ground. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in a tree, I'm in a stand, I'm looking for pinch points. Uh, when I first started to figure out spot and stalk mule deer hunting and your, your feet are on the ground, uh, it's, and you're looking out across this giant landscape, it is, it's a different game completely. And so I do enjoy doing that. Um, uh, I haven't done that recently, but I, I need to get back after it. But primarily it's uh, primarily it's whitetail hunting and I've hunted, I don't know how many different states, but it's a lot of them. I haven't been to them all yet, but but a good number of them. Well, that, yeah, it's, uh, you mentioned feet off the ground. There's a lot of places where you mule deer hunt where there's not a tree within 20 miles. It's... Uh, those tall sage flats are, are something special. Yeah. North Dakota is definitely that I hunted uh, in the badlands there, which is a really uh, awesome place to hunt deer. I, uh, backpack in, set up my camp. Um, not, you know, you, there's, you don't see a light, you don't see a person. Uh, it's just you and the mountain lions and the deer. <laughs> and, uh, there you go. Yeah. And that's pretty awesome. But, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm worried I'm getting too old for that stuff now. Yeah. Now, one of the programs you mentioned earlier, this this field to fork, can we talk about that? Absolutely. It's of interest to me because it combines two of my favorite things, which are hunting and eating. So <laughs> tell it. So, so this was originally designed as a program to get people kind of introduced to and recruited in, into the hunting ranks. Yeah, it, it was really, it started off really just with an idea, and it was literally going to uh, local farmer's markets in Georgia, where, where our headquarters uh, was or is until the end of the month, and just asking people, hey, do you want to try some venison? And that that literally was the door opener to people. You know, the next question is, what well, have you ever thought about going to get your own venison? And so many people say, you know, I always wanted to try hunting, but I never did for whatever reason. Uh, or some might even say, well, I went one time when I was younger or, um, and then some just say, nah, I'm not interested in that. But most of the people, that's not where they fall. They fall in, in the realm of being very interested. And so I wish I, I had Hank Forster sitting next to me here because he's uh, one of the, the uh, sort of masterminds behind the program because he speaks about it so eloquently, but it literally just started with asking other adults the question, um, do you want to try wild game? And if the answer is yes, if you, would you like to try hunting? And that, because that went so well, it just led to the next, uh, you know, sort of the evaluation of that. And then, then you take the next step. And then the next thing you know, you're having field, what we call field to fork hunts, where we invite out 
uh, a number of people who have never hunted before, take them on their first hunt, help them shoot their first deer, process it, cook it, eat it. And these people, they become hunters like right now, because number one, they, in most cases can just, they can uh, buy a bow or a firearm. Um, they can drive to a place to hunt. They can find a place to hunt. They can buy clothing. They can buy the gear. Um, whereas you have, you know, youth can't do that. They still rely on a parent to get them to do these things. And so we quickly figured out that this is the, this is the demographic we need to go after. It's adults of all ages who can actually do this for themselves once we sort of give them a boost and get them started. And so we have since held uh, many, many very successful field to fork events across the country, uh, have created some uh, really lifetime friendships and relationships with new hunters. I just saw, uh, we haven't talked about our uh, partnership with, with Meat Eater in the Back 40 property uh, yet as part of Field to Fork, but um, one of the people that was at a Field to Fork event on the Back 40 uh, earlier this year who didn't get a deer got his first deer later in the year. Uh, and and I just, I saw that posted last night, which is exciting and how excited that person was. They put the time and effort in and uh, to get their first deer. These are, these are people that are, they're going to be hunters and they're going to bring other people along. We've had people that came through as a mentee that become mentors. And so it works. And now it's just about figuring out how to uh, take it to scale. Uh, so for example, why couldn't the Pope and Young Club uh, be putting on field to fork events? There's no reason you couldn't. Uh, and just to get this in front of more people, and uh, I mentioned the back 40 by working with a group like meat eater who has all these eyeballs, people watching everything they do in the back 40 show. Well, they just donated the back 40 property to us. Uh, this was just announced a couple of weeks ago. And that entire property now is, is really going to be turned into a, a great place to advance our field to fork program. We're going to have events there. We're going to film them and we're going to get that out to the masses so people can rep replicate it. And so uh, a lot of big things on the horizon for that program and, and getting more people into our sport. That's great. You know, you know, Nick, you said, you said that, you know, children still rely on their parents and it's a beautiful thing because if you get the parents involved in hunting and you get them in the lifestyle, then they'll get their children involved in it. But also if you get adults cooking and eating wild game at home, now all of a sudden you have more children who aren't growing up unused to wild game on their table. And so um, by getting the parents introduced, you're introducing the children automatically. Absolutely. And I, I think that's, that was the big, um, I guess, aha moment as part of this. And that is, it's, it can be frustrating to see how we've tried to recruit new hunters, uh, even up, even up to now, some things I see that we try to do as a, as a community are just, they don't make sense. So you do a youth field day, which is great. Everybody pats each other on the back. Ah, oh, we did it for the kids. It was great. Whenever you had a hundred kids there, ninety-five of them already come from families that they hunt. You know that person was going to be a hunter, and it's not saying don't do things for the kids. That's not what I'm saying at all. But if your goal is really to recruit new hunters, you don't do it through that uh, through that avenue. You also don't do it by, you know, just the old traditional. Uh, you know, the first thing you have to do is come take your hunter safety course. Well, why not take a, a kid to the outdoors and let them experience the outdoors a little bit through mentor programs, which many, many states now have picked up and are now doing. And then if they like it, they can come back. And uh, after after a couple of years of being mentored, they can get their hunter safety course and then become a hunter instead of putting that 
big gigantic roadblock in front of people. Well, the first thing you need to do is get your hunter safety course. Well, even these adults that go on field to fork, if you're doing it in states that allow mentored hunting, they can go experience hunting before they have to buy or before they have to go through the hunter safety course. And what we find is that's a huge roadblock. So by letting them experience it and they love it, then it's like, hey, I want to go take my hunter safety course. So it kind of reverse engineers uh, how things have always been done in the past. And I think I just think that this is much more innovative and, and actually has a real chance to be successful. Yeah, very, very good. And it's, you know, we've we've said it before. We as as sports sportsmen and sportswomen, you know, more of us is a good thing because when we're trying to get legislation passed, the more we have, the more powerful our voice. The other thing is that state organizations are are clamoring to get the funding that they need for their wildlife programs. You know, in a lot of states, the the license and tag sales go directly to that, and so it's you run. I think on some of these folks where they were introduced to it, they might even be more open to bringing on a friend than, you know, I've, I've had some of my hunting people, you know, some friends of mine that are just like, Oh, well, I'd take somebody, but I don't want them coming back to my spot or gosh, you know, it's already hard enough to draw a tag. So hopefully that as, as that mindset changes and a lot of us realize that it has to hopefully it'll all work together to, to recruit more hunters and, and outdoors people. Well, and especially when you consider that seven out of every 10 people that buy a hunting license will hunt deer. Uh, nothing, no other species is even close to that. Wow. And I would say that if you pulled Hope and Young members, uh, how many of you hunt deer? If you didn't get north of 90%, I'd be shocked. Uh, yeah, I would imagine probably <laughs> close to 100, if not. Yeah. And so deer, as you mentioned, the, this sort of broad conservation and state wildlife agencies and where they get their money, an awful lot of it comes on the backs of deer. And, uh, you know, the reality is, too, is that deer hunting uh, is not really hard to get into at a basic level. Uh, you know, we like to buy all the fanciest gear and uh, the most expensive stuff and all that. But we know that we don't really need that to go <laughs> to go shoot a deer. <laughs> And, you know, deer, because they're plentiful, usually it's a, it can be a target-rich environment. And so it, other than, the, you know, teaching someone how to field dress a deer and what to do with it once you actually get one, uh, it's, it's not a, a tall order to, to give someone a crack at it and get them out there to try. You know, turkey hunting is one I know that people like to use, but, you know, it's not that easy. You're just going to go out and say, oh, I'm going to sit down and call in a turkey to shoot at. Yeah. <laughs> they don't always cooperate. Not the deer do either, but I, I think they're a little easier, a little more predictable with the two. Yeah. Well, um, hey, we're going to go sit down and hunt turkeys. Now, you can't talk, you can't move, and you can't do anything for the next 90 minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that makes it tough. So now some of your other programs, actually, you know, here's a question that, that I have because it's always one that we're asked about. At, at Pope and Young is talk to us about the uh, chronic wasting disease and kind of the new, what is the newest set of updates for that? Oh, that's a loaded, a loaded question. It is. And, and I, I pick on you cause I I've seen you present at, at a number of, of wildlife meetings and, and you always do such a good job. So plus it's on the minds of, of a lot of our folks. 
but now you've gone ahead and put pressure on me to boot. <laughs> so I, I can't mess up now. No pressure. Um, no, you know, the, the 30,000 foot view of it is it's in 26 states, uh, wild herds in 26 states. Uh, and it's, if it's not in your state yet, it's probably coming if I'm just being realistic about it. Um, and so I think the first thing I'd say about chronic wasting disease is we still have a huge divide on the education. We still have a lot of people who just either don't believe it's a problem or, or don't want to believe it's a problem or that it's made up or whatever. And the science, it, it's just simply not the case. People, people nowadays, unfortunately, uh, don't like to follow or believe in science. Uh, this is a relatively new thing. I've seen more and more of over the last decade. But in the science on chronic wasting disease, is it's not something hunters want to hear. They don't want to hear that every deer that gets CWD is going to die. Um, they don't want to hear that it spreads throughout the herd. And because of the way it spreads, that they may have to personally change the way they hunt or how they handle their animals to try to slow the spread. It's inconvenient. It goes uh, contradictory to their traditions. It's just a pain in the butt sometimes. And so it's a very hard sell that it's a problem. The other problem with chronic wasting disease is you don't see it. You rarely see it. Uh, you, a deer can look perfectly healthy. You send in a test to get it tested and you find out it was positive for CWD. Uh, they don't all just walk around like, you know, you know, drooling all over the place and uh, without fear of humans, that's not how it works. That only happens right at the right about the point to where they're ready to die. And so we don't see it. Uh, we don't want to believe in it anyway, and it's very hard to get the point across. But it's in 26 states. Every deer that gets it, every deer, elk, or moose that gets it, it's 100% fatal. They're going to die. Uh, it's spreading across the country. We don't have any cure for chronic wasting disease. Uh, we're not close to a cure for chronic wasting disease. And so what we're left with is... Uh, tools to try to manage the disease and slow it down until we can learn more and, and maybe someday find a cure or some other way to deal with it. Uh, so things like uh, if you're in, a, in an area that has chronic wasting disease, things like not transporting your whole deer out of those areas. So I talk about inconvenience. Let's say you uh, shoot yourself a nice Pope and young buck in, uh, in Illinois, but maybe you live in Pennsylvania. You can't just take that whole head or that whole deer back to Pennsylvania or take the head to your taxidermist. Uh, you have to leave the, the head and the, and the spine. That has, to, that has to stay in that state. And so now you're talking about either working with a taxidermist in Illinois, or if you can cape it yourself, you can bring the cape back and you can cut the antlers off and clean the skull cap and bring that back, but you can't bring the whole head. Same thing with the meat. Uh, you, are you going to get the meat processed there or are you going to uh, process it yourself and take it home? Those are challenges. Even within your own state, I can tell you within uh, in Pennsylvania, where I own land is a, is a chronic wasting disease management area. Where I live is not. And so if I shoot a deer on my land, I have to at least quarter it and leave the head behind and then take it home and process it from there or process it in the field. And so that's inconvenient. And when you're talking about a disease that you can't see, uh, it's, it's really hard to want to believe in it. And so... Um, you know, it's spreading. It's not. It's not going to slow down anytime soon. I'm afraid, uh, but we need to take steps as uh, sportsmen and women to educate ourselves on it, and learn more and figure out what we can do to uh, try to keep it at bay. Gotcha. And that's, you know, you mentioned it's. It's you can't see it. You, 
you know, is it real? And we know it is, but you still, to go through the inconvenience of some of those steps is just more than what some people are even hardly willing to do, I think, in some cases. Well, it almost goes back to the conversation we were having about the, the average hunter in Wisconsin, right? Uh, that person wants to just find time to hunt and enjoy their time out there. And now we're saying, okay, on top of all that, you have to deal with your deer this way. Yeah. And the fear is that, yeah, that it it's enough to make some people just say, you know, what the heck with it? It's not worth it. But I don't, I don't, you know, that's not the way to go. The way to go is to educate to, I remember the first time I quartered a deer and packed it out as opposed to dragging it. I was like, why did I ever drag a deer? This is way better. <laughs> And so I think it's just about teaching people too how to how to do those types of things, and um, you know it'll it'll take some generations, frankly, to to change the dynamic. But uh, just because it's tough doesn't mean we don't do it. And so we work very hard to educate people and make them aware of the disease and what they can do to manage it. Yeah, you had an elk years ago. I was, I was young, and and we worked probably ten or twenty times harder to get that thing out whole so that we could go show everybody than if we had just quartered it out. And now I look at it and man, I wouldn't even think about doing that. So yeah. it's, it's just the way some, some people you have to learn the, the better way to go about things. Yeah, absolutely. And so now what, when, when you talk about, you know, teaching people, obviously you're, you're holding events. So tell us about some of your other communication tools. Yeah, so we if you if you join the National Deer Association, uh, you get our quality whitetails magazine uh, that comes out four times a year. As a matter of fact, as we're speaking, those are the latest issues hitting people's mails mailboxes. We have a weekly newsletter, e-newsletter that you can sign up. You don't have to be a member to get that. We'd love for you to be a member, but you don't have to be. And uh, every Thursday morning, you should wake up to an email that kind of gives you. Uh, we try to give you a little bit of everything in there. We give you a little bit of the deer news, uh, a little bit of the policy stuff, a little bit of uh, education for land managers or a little bit of science. And we put some fun stuff in there as well. So those are the main communication tools. And of course, we're uh, like everyone else, very active on on social media, face, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, so you, we're, we're pretty easy to find. And also our website is just deerassociation.com. That's an easy to, that's an easy one to find. Yes. Very good. So we would encourage everybody to go check that out. And uh, if you like deer, if you like deer hunting, this is an organization you definitely want to look at. Yeah, we appreciate that. Absolutely. And so what is what is one thing, if you had one message that you'd like for people to know about about NDA, what is what is that one thing? Um, I would say that um Give us give us a look. If you care about deer and if you care about conservation, you, you really need to look at what we're doing because we are we are a deer organization that is really a, a, a wholly conservation focused group. And again, I had said seven out of 10 people that, that buy a hunting license hunt deer. And so therefore, it's a pretty important species, right? A uh, pretty Absolutely. important animal for us to take care of, for us to be able to hunt, for our hunters to enjoy. And I also have a dream that, that we'll have people that join us someday that they don't have any intention of hunting themselves. They're just interested in deer and the role they play in conservation. And they view us as a conservation organization. So um, 
I would like to think that we're for everybody. And so um, that, that, that would be the take home. We're not, we're not uh, focused on just how to shoot an old buck. We're not focused on uh, what kind of gun you use, or if you shoot a, uh, you know, a, a muzzle loader, or if you shoot a, a compound bow or a traditional bow, we don't care about any of that. Uh, what we care about is the resource and what we care about is conservation and getting people out there to enjoy it, but also do their part. And so that's, that's why I say I feel like we're an organization for anybody that cares about conservation. Nice. Well, that's good. Conservation is important. If, if you're a hunter, especially a deer hunter, you actually, if you're a hunter of any kind, conservation needs to be part of your, your annual commitment to the resource. We all are out there scouting and, and, and prepping and uh, everything else that goes along with it, spending time at the range and conservation needs to be part of that message when you're out there and needs to be part of what you do to prepare for your season. It's, it's the time to give back is now. Now, Nick, what's, uh, what's your next, do you have any hunting trips coming up that you're looking forward to? Uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to, uh, just going out this evening and, uh, <laughs> taking okay. um, and I, I say that sort of jokingly, I, I love, I love them all. Excellent. Um, yeah. I, uh, I'm not one that, I mean, I've certainly, like I said, I've hunted all, all over the country, but I am just as satisfied going out to try to fill a doe tag this evening. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a day by day person that way. So that's what I'm looking forward to right now. Uh, nice. Next year, I don't have uh, this coming season, I guess, uh, since we're in 2021, I don't have anything planned right now. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll pay attention to opportunities or a lot of different online auctions and banquets and things going on, which, you know, uh, you know a lot about. And yes, sir. Uh, I try to keep my eyes on those things. And if something, uh, something comes up that interests me, I, I might just jump on it. Nice. So here's, a, here's a question that we ask all of our guests and we've had some phenomenal answers. So when you're out hunting, what is one piece of maybe non-traditional gear that you find yourself taking along? What is one of those things you just can't live without that maybe not everybody has in their pack? Hmm, man, something that not everybody else has in their pack. Whew. I'm going to think about while I'm thinking about that, I'll give you an answer of something that I stumbled onto this year that I, I really love. Okay. And that is these, uh, these new hand warmers that are electric. They charge uh, on a USB cable. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Zippo. They're a, they're a Pennsylvania company where I'm at uh, and they make an awesome little hand warmer. It lasts for up to nine hours. And you don't have the waste of throwing away the ones that you shake out and whatnot. Um, so I don't know that everybody has that in their pack just yet, but it's something that you should have in your pack um, because, uh, like I said, it eliminates the waste. And just about anywhere you hunt, you're probably going to get cold hands at some point. All right. Um, that, yeah, just, you know, that's an acceptable answer right there, Nick. Is it? Is it? You know, yeah. Nick, my, my mom my mom is a school teacher. And she has those for recess duty and morning bus duty when it's cold, those exact ones. See, there you have it. There See, you have I, it. I'm actually looking, I, I'm just anxious that, you know, this ba battery powered stuff is is becoming more socially acceptable. Because the first time I showed up to a, to a hunting camp with some battery powered gloves, 
I don't know, this is probably 10 or 12 years ago, man, I was practically laughed out of the place. Now, the next day when I was the only one that could still call because my hands weren't completely frozen, some of them quit laughing a little bit. And then the next year when I showed up with, you know, socks and a layout, you know, a seat, heated seat and all the other stuff, um, it, it was amazing that probably half or more of the people there had some kind of battery gear. But uh, it's nice to see it's becoming more socially acceptable to be comfortable in the field. Well, I'm just uh, I'm just getting too old to do some of the stupid stuff I used to do. I'm retired from like all day sits and all this other stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and so I want to have warm hands and warm feet. And, uh, you know, I I will say the reason that's a hard question for me to answer is because I'm I'm a minimalist when it comes to I'm always trying to figure out how how little I can take into the woods. And so. Um, for example, most of the time now I'm hunting from a, a tree saddle, so I'm not even carrying like a big tree stand or anything. I'm just getting up into the tree with a little platform or I'll hunt from the ground this evening. I very much, I'm planning to go out and just hunt from the ground this evening. Um, so I try to keep it basic. Um, you know, I'll put a little spin on your question. I, I think one thing that, uh, a thing that I have to have, if I am going to be out for any period of time is I like to pack a couple of uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in my pack. So, <laughs> Um, I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I probably have one, uh, four out of seven days a week for lunch. And, uh, there's, to me, they they never taste better than they do when you pull them out of your cold pack, uh, when you're out there hunting the rut and, uh, it's almost like buying a hot dog at the ball game. They just always seem to taste better. So that's probably my, uh, if I, if I go out on a longer, a longer days uh, hunt and I don't have one, uh, I'm not going to be nearly as happy. Okay, so Nick, you heard it here first. Nick Pinizato and every 10-year-old in America loves peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> yep, I'm not ashamed. I, I'm no, ashamed. you know, and I, I, I like them as well. I don't know that I take them to the same level, but I, you know, I always enjoy one, pulling one out of the pack. And the nice thing about those, even if they get squished, they still taste just as good. You got it. Yep. Yeah. Well, Nick, um, I really want to thank you for coming on and spending some time with this. I know I was excited to have you, and I think our listeners are really going to appreciate what you're doing. Um, if if you, like you say, it probably affects all of our members um, because we're all out there chasing deer. So take, take a look at uh, the website and uh, check them out. Give them a look. So thank Nick, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. We really appreciate you being on. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I certainly appreciate what you guys do. And we've partnered on on some things uh, over the years and looking forward to continuing to do that. Absolutely. Same for us.